Exploring the healing and culture building practices of embodied anti-racism. This is With Love and Justice for All with Reverend Ogan Holder and Reverend Kelly Isola. Recording in progress. Good afternoon or good morning or good evening, depending on what time you're listening. Uh, I'm Reverend Kelly Isla here with my um, cohort in crime and consciousness, most importantly. And welcome to With Love and Justice for All, where we have conversations around embodied anti-racism, dismantling oppression, and just all the challenges that arise, particularly in the area with spiritual seekers and spiritual communities. If you want to join in the conversation, if you're listening live, you can call in to 816-251-3555, or you can message us on Facebook or Instagram, and our handle at both places is at Get Our Holy On. That's and what email us. Email too. Right? Yes, you can, yes, you can email to ogan at projectsanctus.com uh, or kelly at projectsanctus.com. So, hi, Ogan. How are you? Hi it's 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 been a it's been an interesting week uh yeah i am i am i am uh found out uh late last week uh, um, a good college friend um suddenly passed away from a from a heart attack believe it or not only at a uh, 53 and wow kind of kind of hit all us alumni from around that time um pretty hard uh so i'm i'm dealing with that and as, as we know about grief grief one you know uh any new grief basically triggers all the other old griefs so between that and and we also and then there's that i guess ambiguous grief that collective grief mm-hmm. ambiguous and collective yeah of, of hitting that nine hundred thousand um death yes milestone from the pandemic the the, the we we are the country with the highest death toll from the pandemic much of which could be and still can be avoidable um so 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 that's that's been weighing on me as well and of course what we know from the stats is it's disproportionately hit um minority communities um because um a lot of the folks um that we like to call essential workers but what they really are is expendable workers were severely hit by the pandemic. Now, this is to distinguish from the what we call frontline workers, right? So, you know, nurses, doctors, uh, law enforcement, firemen, emergency workers, the frontline workers. I'm talking about, oh, you know, the people who bring the groceries through Instacart, uh, the people who uh, deliver our food through Grubhub and DoorDash and all these um, the people who can't afford to quit their job, the people who rely heavily on taking public transportation because they don't own a car, the people who are drastically underpaid um, and that live at the poverty level, yeah. um, which are, again, disproportionately minorities, um, have been more affected because they, they couldn't stay home like, yeah. like so many other people. So people call them essential workers. Mm, the reality is they're, they're, they're expendable um and and it it hits it hits us harder well and the um um i you know two things one i also i had not been paying attention to to the you know the death toll and infection rate because where i live in missouri it's got one of the lowest vaccination rates and one of the higher being ill and dying yeah how how many times have you had covid i've had it twice and i yes yes and um And I, and I take precaution, like I do, it's just become a, what is here where I live. Uh, And people are not willing to, to just like, great. You don't want a vaccine, then put on a mask. I got it. You know, anyway, different show, but I had not been, I know, just get us on a soapbox, but I had not been paying attention to how many people have died. And it just was a few days ago. I saw the over 900,000 and I'm like, Oh God, you know, I, I didn't, it was just too overwhelming to even try to, I, you know, I don't know what even to do with it. It just was really disturbing. And I was thinking what you were just saying, as well as there's been this thing and maybe not as much lately in the last six months or year, but certainly for a long time, there was what you're calling essential workers. The other term that's been used is the unsung heroes. Right. And I'm like, OK, where were all y'all before the pandemic in terms of an unsung hero? You know, the essential workers is expendable workers, as you said, yep. the people that that 
you know, can't don't ha- don't have a car, rely on public transportation, who rely on family, you know, to to all care for each other. And then and just the you know, the uh, it was I was reading something and someone was sort of turning around that unsung hero thing um, in like, where have you been? Um, kind of thing. So what you said reminded me of that, which um, is probably a a nice little segue into what we're talking about today Um, is uh, because it can, because you're, because we, what we're talking about today is that black, it's not a monolith. Like we, you know, we are not a monolith, meaning um, people of color, African-Americans, black people, whether they're African descent or not, but it's not a monolith. Um, and, and if, and yet there's a, certainly the tendency within, uh, white bodies to, um, to look at it and to use a term to just kind of assume that if someone's black, there's all these things you can know about them, which I want to, I want to come back to that one in a moment, but what we're talking about is, um, is really diving into that if you, you know, to really take on the idea that black is not a monolith means that we really have to consider the full breadth and depth of every individual experience for every single black person that they don't move, think, speak, cook, dress, pick any facet of the human existence. And it's not the same. And yet we often put them into a box. And later on, we're going to talk about some of those boxes and stereotypes that are a result of white body cultural, you know, supremacy norms that even though we may, you know, someone may know or largely not know the, the, um, the vast um, diversity of, of culture and ethnicity backgrounds and lived experiences. um, And the one thing maybe that, that is in common is the color of skin. And even that's debatable. Um, Uh, which I'm sure we'll go into that as well. But what we do know is that um, the way that, that, and this has been one of the big things and, you know, since, since George Floyd's murder and, and, you know, the, in some ways people waking up and wanting to, Oh, we, we, we need to pay attention and be anti, you know, do some anti-racism work. And, Oh, we do have a, a mess, you know, a 400 years to dismantle, but, but, but part of that, we're not a monolith and this has for myself included that how a black person navigates or deals with whiteness is not the same. I think that's one of the insidious things that, cause I remember when, um, you know, when Trump was elected and um, you know, here I am in all my white wokeness and, and hearing a, um, a young, uh, a 22 year old black woman um being so excited that Trump had this so this would have been six years ago you know all excited that that Trump had been elected and I'm like I'm sorry what and in my mind I'm doing that because one you're a woman two you're young and three you're black so I realized this this momentary assumption right of of wait you're glad you actually voted for like just exactly what we're talking about. I'm like, oh, I had lumped her together. So we're going to talk about blackness is not a monolith. Um, what does blackness mean? What's anti-blackness? And now I'll let you talk. Well, thank you. <laughs> As a, Since I'm not black. All, all what you said. Yeah. You're not black, but you're also not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> all, 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 all what you said. Uh, and and to quote another white person, Bono, we're one, but we're not the same. So yes. so there's there yes there is the there is the because of all the internalized uh, white supremacy cultural norms we talk about that 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 we are viewed collectively, and and you couldn't you probably couldn't find more nuanced and less than nuanced differences among people who fall under that umbrella of of, of black. Uh, you know, you have you have black folk who who were born here, who have grandparents, great 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 grandparents who were born here in America. They're Americans. America is their way of life. African Americans. You have people like me who spent the first twenty years of his life in Barbados, a Caribbean country that is vastly predominantly black. Who didn't who didn't have those obvious um, 
micro and macro aggressions um, from a white body. Again, you know, any any society that's a British colony or 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 or, or had to deal with colonialism has its own share of internalized oppressions. Um, and we'll talk about some of those later as well. And we have mentioned some of those before, but, but I didn't, I, I didn't have that. You have, you have people who are, who are coming from all different parts of, of the world, um, who have dark skin color and are vastly different culturally. Um, and, 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 and in, in weird ways, because of that internalized oppression and the internalized idea of closer proximity to whiteness is more valuable. We we mistreat each other. We look down on each other. Colorism is a is a is a real thing. Um, and and part of part of being in that, and I'll tell my own story a little bit. Part of part of being involved in that is as a as a black person living here in America. What what does it mean to fit in? Right. What does it mean? to hold a place. I remember when I first came to college, I, I didn't feel I fit in with the other black students um, because I was vastly unaware of, of hip hop culture. Um, I didn't, I didn't dress the same. Um, I didn't, I didn't love the same things. I wasn't, I wasn't nearly a, uh, you know, to uh, a basketball fan or American football fan. I grew up watching cricket and soccer, what the rest mm-hmm. of the world calls football, which you know uh so 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 there were there were no common ground there um, well even having an accent i would imagine. having an accent right that was different a, food that was a whole thing the well i mean uh, <laughs> i love me some american food don't get me wrong so yeah well i'm just <laughs> like, thinking when you first got here you know but it was interesting it might have been it might have been as i as i got to know some black students um, especially because i went to school in virginia so black students from the south um, as we talked, the food might have been the only thing we really had in common, right? Because uh-huh. descendants, uh, the, any anyone who is descendant uh, from from slavery, no matter where they are in the world, um, especially Caribbean and and North America, there tends to be great commonality in 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 foods um, uh, as 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 well. So 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 lots so some overlap there, but but I didn't feel like I belonged um with with the black populace um i for obvious reasons didn't feel like i belonged with the white populace either but because of my major music therapy at the time like there there was more common place there so it was interesting because then i hung out with more of my fellow music therapy majors who i think at the time were pretty much almost all exclusively white um mm-hmm. And not not all, but let's say ninety eight percent of them were. So so, um, I remember getting feelings from from some of the other black students that um, I felt I was better than them as a result of that. Whereas me was really kind of feeling both afraid and displaced of the other black students because I I couldn't see my common place with them um, as a result and eventually I would learn to realize that the rest of mainly outside of the campus, because, because the campus Shenandoah university, um, which is my alma mater was a very diverse campus, you know, um, for, for a college in Virginia, it was, it was, there was a, there was a, um, a huge um, East Asian population, a lot of Japanese music majors, because they did an intentional job of, of reaching out, um, bringing students from Japan, from uh, different Asian countries, uh, there were black students, there were white students, there were so it was a very diverse little melting pot. Outside Winchester, Virginia, was not uh, yeah uh, very diverse at all. And I would realize eventually, as I ventured out into the Winchester community, that how I was being seen and treated was just like every other black student and every other black resident um of the of the town and it it wasn't all positive so 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 there's that so so that's the complexity and nuance we're talking about and and part of part of what that comes from is a lot of those uh stereotypes um that that are associated with blackness 
one of the things we can talk about, I mean, let's cover some of the stereotypes and then let's talk a little bit about what anti-blackness is, right? Because that's 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 why we are quote unquote seen as this monolith and treated as this monolith. Um, but but we are not. And like you, yes, I was like, why 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 would black folk be Trump supporters? I didn't uh, that kind of flabbergasted me and and but to realize that like um you know by my own admission i was i was also doing the uh a little bit of the only thing i saw in trump was someone who was overtly racist and discriminatory mm-hmm. that's all i saw right um and and people could perhaps also could could or maybe argument for it was in their financial best interest, regardless of their skin color, to have him as president, or um, I don't know. They 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 bought into the snake oil salesman pitch of of he was looking out for them because he didn't he didn't he didn't talk like your average politician, right? Um, and even though he lied worse than the average politician, arguably, right. um, you know. Uh, so so not arguably, we track those things. Yeah, <laughs> there's we there's data. So yeah. I take that back. Um, well, and but- even even you know moving off Trump, but even watching you know individuals vote for you know at a local or state level, mm-hmm. uh, you know voting someone into office that then you know puts forth um, legislation that limits you know that suppresses that does voters suppression, right, right, right. And I'm like, how do you you know? And I so I I do find myself, um, yeah. Well, when we, when we, when we, when we buy the, when we buy the, what do you call it, talking points, instead of digging into the details, then that's where we run into issues. And again, um, part of, part of the issues, again, because of the internalized oppression that many of us people of color have to deal with, like I said before, we, we don't treat each other well. Um, I had a, and I had a great example of this when I went back home um, to Barbados over the holidays and my mother was uh, having a little bit of a tirade around um, why can't black people get their act together? And I was like, uh, are, 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 is it, is it, is it us we're referring to? Like, what do you mean? Why can't black people get their act together? I don't know if yeah. you check, but, but you happen to be one of them and me too. Right. right. Yeah. So, so yeah. could you, could you expound on that a little bit? Right. And part of what she was expounding on was this whole, uh, it was, it was dealing with legacy, right. And, and inheritance. And, and she's just going yeah. on and on about, you know, when white people set things up, they're clear that they set them up with their further generations in mind and making sure that the children, the grandchildren are in line of succession, blah, blah, blah. And black people just dealing with, black people just want to spend the money now they haven't. And she is just going on and on. She's like, they don't want to leave nothing behind and yada, yada, yada. I'm just like, all right, there's a lot to unpack there right now. <laughs> you know, let's, yeah. let's, let's begin, let's begin you know, with that, with that idea that it's only within recent generations, black people have even had anything to leave behind. Right. right? Yes. Uh, uh, so, so, so relatively new concept plus uh, yeah, that's, are you, are you referring to our family? Can we, can we narrow this down a little bit? Right. right. <laughs> and stop. Yeah. Never mind me. like a giant global monolith. How about just this? Little? Yeah. 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 This little and, model. And, yeah. and and not to tell up my family's business, but that is what she's referring to because, yeah. because we there we have a very successful business started by my grandmother in Barbados. Uh, my mother's generation can't seem to get their together to agree on what's the succession plan and how we can mm. move forward. And none of my generation want anything to do with it because how uh, their generation have been always arguing, fighting. Yeah stabbing each other in the back, all this sort of thing over this business. And we've seen this business be more of a source of conflict wow. and connection. And we're like, no, we, we want nothing to do with this. And then my daughter rolls in and says, you know, after I be a dancer for like a couple, you know, 
decades and my knees give out, I think I'd like to come back home and take over the family business. So let's make sure it keeps happening. Let's make sure it keeps running. My mother was so glad to hear that. Uh, she'll just she's keep like, going fine. just to wait. Yeah, she's like, finally somebody. I was like, all right, good luck with that. I don't know if it's still going to be there, but yep. it's a it's a whole thing. So so let's let's look at uh, let's look at some of these uh, stereotypes um that that we're that we're talking about so for example this you know it, the the and this was popularized in you know in the 80s by the by the reagan administration you know they have the welfare mom uh that that like you know you look at a black person and you're thinking yep they probably grew up with that single mom they didn't have a family the dad wasn't around you know there and and that stereotype continues today and, and part well, of and dad wasn't around because he was either in jail in jail or or off selling drugs or, or off selling drugs yeah. or had all the other families right like lined right. up right um and and the the being in jail thing there is some credence to that because again black men targeted more yes uh, and and jailed more mm-hmm. than than white men for for the same like minor crimes yes. yeah Right. So, so everywhere. And I'm going after the assumption though. Yes. 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 The assumption. So, but, and as the side note, if there are more black men in jail is because more white judges put them there. Right. Uh, Not because they committed any more crimes than any, any other person. So Mm. put a pin in that, but yeah, so there's, there's, there's that uh, uh, assumption as, as well, that, that black men can't be good fathers or like as a black person, you didn't, you, you, you only, you grew up poor in a single mother family household. Yep. Um, well, and that, and and so um, a stereotype that's kind of that that for me from the outside as a white body that's connected to that um, or the assumption that often goes with that is that um, stereotype of the angry black woman. Um, and yes. that um, they're you know portrayed in TV and movies as you know. Um, um, harpies and you know sassy and talk back and always an edge right yeah, like yeah. these major attitude problems um and and that's a great that's a great um like intersectional problem because because um that it's it's a it's a sexism problem to begin with right mm-hmm. that women yeah. that, that that women are emotional <laughs> uh and and can't can't be can't be trusted to 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 handle um, positions of authority and power right. because they're, they're ruled by their emotions somebody somebody pointed out um you know where where have women ever started a war right it's all been the men bombing places not the women uh so there's so there's that but but and to that point it's even worse so they start there and then it's even worse for black women yes um, as well because because they're just being ruled by anger yes and black women who are lesbian like yes keep you know it just continues worse devolve yes yeah and the irony of the war thing i have no idea if there's any truth to this so it's men starting war uh and often in order to have control over women you know or a particular woman or somewhere there's a woman in the mix that's at fault yeah Uh, Yeah. yes some, something like something like that um, another another maybe stereotype is is around uh hip-hop culture right the uh an, an assumption that that a black person is a lover of hip-hop knows everything about hip-hop and yeah not not true let's let's be clear um the vast majority if not all but definitely the vast majority of basically american art forms music art forms come out of black culture jazz rock hip-hop soul like like you you name it even 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 to even to an extent country music um has has huge historical black uh influence as well um did i mention rock and roll rock and roll yes yeah you know we think of the king of rock and roll elvis presley who like lifted all his stuff from black yes. people you know yeah. especially in his earliest days so we have that as well and let's be clear we're not a monolith so not every black person you see is is uh a fan of hip-hop is embedded in hip-hop culture doesn't dress as though uh they're, they're hip-hop fan but but it might be an assumption 
Becky May. Oh, he's black. She's black. They must they must love hip hop. No. Yeah. Or know who the who the artists are or know <clears throat> what, um, you know, the, the clothes and the jewelry and the language. And yeah, uh, um, that's I think hip hop is one of those stereotypes that that really is um, props up that monolithic idea. Yeah. Um, which is fascinating considering again how much of hip hop has been appropriated by yes. white America. Yeah. You know, uh to the point where where um some white artists um specifically white female artists have are are even appropriating the look. Um, right. and I mean and I mean physically, you know, getting uh getting um what do you call it uh botox in the lips to get fuller oh, lips. collagen yeah uh, the collagen, lip injection. right yeah. you know bigger butts slender, like like emulating yes emulating the actual look of yeah. black women um and what, what did they call it uh uh there's a word, there's a term for it i don't know but you'll remember while we're I'll on remember, break yeah. when we're on break <laughs> I'll so when up. we come back, we're going to pick up with uh, um, talking about some stereotypes and anti-backlist on um, with Love and Justice for All, where this week is We Are Not a Monolith. You're listening to With Love and Justice for All with Reverend Ogan Holder and Reverend Kelly Isola. All right, welcome back to With Love and Justice for All. Uh, today's episode, we are not a monolith. We're we're talking about blackness, being black, the the varieties, the nuances of what that means, and um, in a little bit, we're gonna we're gonna talk about what anti-blackness means and 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 how that how that shows up and uh since it is black history month um part of what we will we we will be doing not just this month but i'll be pleased to move forward is to maybe introduce you to some 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 figures in black history aka american history that you may or may not be um aware of uh so we were talking about some 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 stereotypes um that that folks may apply to a black person uh when they when they see them and we were we just talked a little about hip-hop we were getting into uh to to some music and and some entertainment cultural things uh like that um and uh, so we we're trying to we were trying to figure out a break where to where to where to go from from here uh in in the discussion um but i think i think uh where i'd like to go which i didn't mention before where where i'd like to go is um the the overarching idea around um the what we call the the super negro where the there's this idea that um you see a black person especially a black man but you see a black person and they are to be feared because yeah. of this idea that as a black person i am stronger angrier more impervious to to pain um and um, if you look at um some of the police uh shootings and murders that have occurred over the last few years um you're you're probably wondering why would the police think that this person um might be harmful in any sort of way um and um i was trying to what is the name the 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 kid who who um i think he was autistic why can't i remember his name is it elijah bland no what was his name i'm having a brain thing right now <laughs> a brain cloud a brain cloud uh, um uh, but he was he was a he was a young gentle boy really um late teens early 20s i'm gonna gotta look this yeah up. elijah mclean mclean sorry there you go elijah McClain. i knew had to there's an elijah from the last name mm-hmm. uh um like mclean who was just the gentlest of 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 young men a musician um and 
and it um, I don't remember how many cops there were, but it was like three or four of them who basically beat him to a point where he didn't survive. Yeah, they and, put him in a chokehold and they injected him with ketamine. Yeah, and, that's right. And yeah, you know, and like, just trying to, you know, why why <laughs> that? Because again, there's that there's that there's that this is this is how all black men, all black women, all black people are to be viewed. Yep. Um, as as some sort of like superhero, so so you know there's a so and and that comes out of the from from direct line all the way back to uh, slave owners. Um, so so that's that's a uh, that's one of those when we talk about white supremacy cultural norms, that's the thing we are talking about. Um, it is embedded in the unconscious um, of white America that black bodies are to be feared. Um, and it never occurs to them that we might be the ones who are afraid. And the truth is, we right. are. Right. We are the ones afraid. Um, I know. I know um, a, a friend of mine, acquaintance who who's a black man, and he's kind of a big dude. I mean, he's like maybe six six, uh, fairly well built. He is afraid to go drive it at night mm. because he's very clear that. If he gets pulled over for any reason or stopped for any reason, legitimate or non-legitimate, he's going to be seen as a threat and he doesn't know he's going to survive. So he doesn't go driving at night anymore at all. If he has to go somewhere at night, he gets an Uber. Wow. Because he is afraid to go driving. Um, and and it's a it's a justified fear. Yeah. So so that's 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 another thing I wanted to mention. And that, and uh, you know, that's a, that's a good segue into when, when we talk about anti-blackness. What is it? What does that mean? And um, the, I was trying to find some ways to speak to this, and, and I and I remembered this thing and read, um, and it's by Dr. Uh, Kihana Ross, Kihana Mariah Ross, and she wrote this uh, shortly after uh, George Floyd's murder. Um, she's a professor of African American studies at Northwestern. And I'm just going to read what she wrote because it just encapsulates what it is perfectly. Anti-Blackness describes the inability to recognize Black humanity. It captures the reality that the kind of violence that saturates Black life is not based on any specific thing a Black person, better described as a person who's been racialized Black, did. The violence we experience isn't tied to any particular transgression. It's gratuitous and unrelenting. Black people were rendered as property, built this country, spilled literal blood, sweat, and tears into the soil from which we eat, the water we drink, the air we breathe. The thingification, and I, that, that word really jumps out, the thingification of Black people yeah. is a fundamental component of the identity of this nation. Reckoning with this reality is significantly more difficult than wrestling with prejudice, racism, and even institutional or structural racism. And it does more than any of these concepts do to help us make sense of over 400 years of Black suffering, of our unremitting, interminable pain, rage, and exhaustion. So this is when we talk about anti-Blackness, that embedded idea, that unconscious, we talked about this what did we talk about this yesterday during our Instagram, right? The, the, the unconscious bias yeah. that we have that somehow a black person is maybe less than human. And I know you're up there listening, thinking, nope, I don't think that if you're, you know, especially if you're white body, I don't think that. And you don't consciously think right. that, right. But think about, you know, if you, as an example, like I mentioned, as you might think of a big black man, right? And you know, is this a person that suddenly you find yourself having a twinge of fear around if you happen to bump into him on the street, or it, you know, that's where that comes from—the unconscious, the unconscious underlying the what Just, we call the and, internalized. And that goes on all the time all in the time. terms of like crossing the street or you're in the grocery store, whether it's one black person or, you know, God forbid you see a few gathered together, you know, it's unconsciously white bodies will turn, go down a different aisle or cross the street or, and it, it is, it is unconscious. One um, of the, one of the bravest things and the most vulnerable things that 
um, an older white woman said, and she was in, I think maybe a class of mine or a workshop of ours or something. I don't remember, but she said, um, I, I realized that every time I'm driving through town or I'm at a park or somewhere and I see a group of Hispanic men, I feel afraid and clutch my purse tighter to me. Right. She goes, and I didn't even realize I was doing this. And when I realized I did, I, I began to feel very ashamed and I want to change that. And, yeah. and like her, her honesty and vulnerability was, was very touching. Um, and for her to go, like, it wasn't until, it wasn't until the last couple of years that she realized this was a thing she was doing unconsciously. Right. All right. So, 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 so. Um, and and specifically when it relates to 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 black individuals, that's what we refer to as as anti blackness, um, and and it I mean it just shows up in in so many ways um, in in our culture. Well, Doctor Doctor Joy De, De Gruy, um she she if if and many people know who she is if um, but she she's written about and she talks about post traumatic slave syndrome. Mm-hmm. And the post-traumatic slave syndrome is that we're all socialized in white body cultural norms, um, which is uh, everything that. So what you read from uh, Dr. Ross, this unremitting, interminable pain, rage and exhaustion is all, you know, is carried forward. It's generational. It's the trauma. So when when you um uh, you know, moms having to, and you've talked about this with joy, you know, paying attention to, um, you know, when you go out driving, right. Or mm-hmm. you, you know, having to have the, the conversation with your child about how, as you get older, how, how you're going to need to behave in public is right. all, you know, is that byproduct of that. And so we perpetuate the anti-blackness by not, you know, being willing to see what that woman saw, the older woman. Exactly. Um, exactly. Um, we, we as black parents shouldn't have to have these conversations with our black right. children, right. but we do because we are afraid and we want to keep them alive. So, yes. so we are, we are passing that fear down when we talk about passing on generational trauma, we are, we are passing that fear down to them as it was passed down to us as they'll probably pass down to their children if things don't change in a hurry. Um, and, and that internalized trauma is, is stressful. It's, it's, it's exhausting. Um, yeah. and, and you've heard us, you've heard us talk about this, uh, be, before and it's, and it's, and it's not a fear that, that white bodies need get to carry. It's not, it's, it's, it's not a thing. Um, and I remember uh, a good friend of mine, her, her, her son, um, he's, they're white and, and, and not financially well off. And, and he was arguing against the whole white privilege thing. Um, but again, he was only understanding in the narrow confines of, of economics. And, and when we had to, when I had to sit down and explain to him, you know, I said, you're, you've learned to drive you go drive in has your mom ever had this conversation with you right. around you know and he goes like no i was like this is why she hasn't because it's not a thing that you're afraid of or she's afraid of but it's a conversation i've had to have with joy do you yeah. think it's fear that joy has to my daughter has to drive with that weighing on her when you don't and and then he began to get it a little bit. Uh, yeah, or go into a Starbucks and just sit there without ordering something and being left alone. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And not be thought what what might that person be up to. Um, right. So so that's a that's a whole thing. Right. Um. So so um. So the other the other um. So we talked about um the well the not the and- uh, the the superhuman the black superhuman. Mm-hmm. Uh, the super negro there's also uh the magical negro um, right and this is we we see this on the screen a lot um where where you have you you have a black character um usually men but um and and they are um solely there to help white the white character the white lead 
out of some trouble or crisis that they're in. Um, and that's the only purpose they serve to be of service. Um, to do the labor and toiling. A, a good, a good. To save the a, white person. A good example of this uh, Legend of Bagger Vance. Remember that movie? Yeah. Yeah. Um, where Will Smith played a black, the ghost of a black caddy or a black caddy ghost, however you want to determine it, whose sole purpose was to help. Uh, the white golfer played by Matt Damon and that that golfer was based on a, an actual real golfer whose name again me and the names man this is Juna. his name is Juna yeah there you go uh out of out of uh help him find a swing again right right so so that's that's an example of, of, of that movie so it tends to be sometimes this unconscious trope that we're we're here to be of service right. to you and let's get real. <laughs> if you look at the time that that movie the, is representing, the time mm-hmm. period, the likelihood of that, you know, seriously, a black caddy is going to help out a white guy. Like, uh, yeah, yeah not so much in the golf house at all. Um, and um, so I've been, also been mentioning that I've been watching this uh, new show on HBO called uh, The Gilded Age. It is. The- yes. It is the new series by uh, Julian Fellows, the guy who wrote Downton Abbey. And I'm a big Downton Abbey fan. Uh, I am a fan of the Gilded Age. Um, and partly because I'm, I'm a big fan of historical fiction. I love historical yeah. fiction. I love history, but <laughs> history books are goddamn boring. Pardon my French. They're <laughs> just boring. So, so you know, to, to fictionalize it, um, um, right. especially when there is more, there's more truth in the fiction than 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 not is is that holds my attention so so the gilded age is all about you know in in new york and it's there there was a long succession of of what they call old money people descended from the original white people or descended from the original uh, founders white colonials white you know and then and then now here's these new upstarts the new upstarts people like you know rockefellers and 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 stuff like that the new money versus the old money but but fascinatingly in this in this story they're they're also telling the story of a young black woman who's struggling to be an author and 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 the the one of the main white families in the show uh, their matriarch takes her in as a secretary treats her pays her treats her well and she's still sleeping in the servants quarters yeah. and uh because of you know we're talking early 20th century here so she's still being seen as less than and there was this there was a scene where she and her father on the sidewalk talking and this white couple just you know they're white couple out for a stroll and she and the father who are at, are at odds are talking to each other and the white couple approaches them they're just walking and stops and waits for them to get out of the way so that they can just keep on strolling you know and it was like yeah yeah. um but 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 that 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 female well and even the the niece of the the matriarch Mm -hmm. is she's she's befriended this this um black woman who's a budding author and the role that this this uh the niece plays in trying to help her she's does it apologetically and 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 seeks permission yes you know to and don't tell anyone like any of the other servants in the house don't tell anyone that i'm helping this this young black woman and yeah yeah. so those 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 roles uh you know and and i give i give points for the somewhat historical accuracy uh of of the time but again uh, the black woman is being seen as just being there in servitude right. to, to to help and and yeah. is not um, taken and is not seen as a a, a a human or even equal there's the latest episode if you haven't watched the latest episode cover ears spoiler alert um you know she 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 submits some write-ins to to a to a paper and they want to publish her, but they're like, here's the conditions in which we can publish you. Um, we can't let people know you're black. Uh, right. And your name sounds white enough so we can keep your name, but we can't let people know you're black. Oh, by the way, the character in your story, this young, this black girl who's in your story, who, who you know, who does a heroic thing. Yeah, you got to change her to a, to a white girl. 
Uh, otherwise, we're going to lose our readers in the South. Uh, so it's it's again that that dehumanization that we talked about, the anti-Blackness, not recognizing Black humanity. Um, so there's a... Um, I want to change direction just a little bit. Sure. And let's make I sure st- to leave some, enough time for, for me to talk about about the Kambahi River Collective. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's funny you put you, I saw you added that to our notes because the the person that I wanted, you know, we were going to, because it's Black History Month. So the person that I wanted to talk about today um, you know, is Margaret Sloan, oh. who's a founder of that. Of oh. the, um, Look at us oh. on the same page. Didn't know, didn't know. He's a, we're even, psychically connected. I'm right, saying, before like and before the Kambahi River Collective, the, um, um, Anyway, that I just that. All right, uh, then you go. You go that. first with yours. This is our black. This is our quote unquote Black History Month moment, I guess. Yeah, yes. So, <laughs> well, I just I wanted to just quickly presence the coming back to Black is not a monolith. That it to as a as a a white person, um, it, it's you know, people of African descent, you know, different language, different food, different ethnicity, different religion, different, different everything than someone who comes from, um, say, the, the Caribbean or a Black person from South America or a Black person from, um, you know, Asia. It's just, we do, we make these assumptions and I, I just think it's really, really important. I mean, even around food, like something mm-hmm. like food. So as a white person, um, when I find myself thinking, you know, oh, there I am thinking black as a monolith, is is just looking at the origins and very, you know, it's very different if I just pause and pay attention and um and look at um look at the roots and and even within uh you know the US, those, you know, there is um you know, Pew Pew Research just uh, just did a, a huge research study that just came out a few weeks ago about Black immigrants to the U.S. and looking at the the differences in, you know, um, earning income and education and um, communal groups and trust and all kinds of different facets of living the human experience and how different they all were depending on where they were, you know, if they were just born here second generation third fourth or just came from somalia or you know it just i just invite the you know white people to kind of to to just Um, pause um share that share that link on our facebook page i will Um, i will and so if you're listening um check out our project sanctus uh facebook page um in a little bit and we will get that up there yes um so the person that i wanted to talk about is margaret sloan uh, margaret sloan hunter but she um she is not um i don't think most people know who she is um when she was actually when she was 14 she joined the congress of racial uh, equality and she worked on poverty and urban issues on behalf of african-american community um she just was a um um an activist and she worked with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And she um, she became one of the first editors of Ms. Magazine. But she really was a voice and founded with a, some other women, the National Black Feminist Organization. She was an activist and really brought forward the um, uh you know, putting forward the Black feminist organization because, you know, up until then, for the most, what was being starting to talk about and point to is that the idea, you know, of of sexism and and racism was largely about um, men and white women, right? Sexism issues really was focused on the rights of white women, um, and so she she's a black feminist, a lesbian, a civil rights advocate. Um, and um, was responsible for, from the National Black Feminist Organization, came the, what you just presenced, uh, the Kambahi River Collective. So I'm going to let you take pick up there. Sorry, I'm muted. The, uh, the Kambahi River Collective, it, it, it's a black, it was a black feminist um, socialist organization. 
Um, they operated out of Boston from about 74 to 80, which didn't seem like a long time, but but their influence uh, continued years and years after. And their argument was, to your point, like the white feminist movement was not really addressing uh, the needs of Black women and more specifically Black lesbian women. Right. Um, so they so so some of the some of the early names in in that movement uh, Audre Lorde, uh, Demita Fraser, Cheryl uh, Clark, um, they they formed this collective to really address that because as you just said uh, there was they tended to be when it came to the uh, civil rights movement um, it tended to be more di- more highlighted men and elevated men so there was a sexist element to it. Um, and there was also a homophobic element right. to it as well. And I think I think a lot of that came from the fact that, uh, you know, for better or for worse, a lot of the civil rights leaders who were men were also clergy and ministers. And, you know, Christianity, shocker, has a strong homophobic element. So so um, there was there was that, too. And um, and before you get letters on that, uh, no, not all Christianities like that, especially progressive Christianity, but, you know, fairly traditional evangelical Southern Baptist, that sort of uh, um, um, strain of Christianity was homophobic. So they, they, so because of what they were doing, they're the, like the pioneers of what we would call the intersectionality movement. Yeah. Um, if you will, cause they were, they were, they were addressing a lot of things, uh, women's movement, uh, black rights or civil rights, uh, and, and standing up for, for lesbians as well, the LGBTQ community. Um, and, um, do I have time to? Yeah. So here's here's a here's a part of their statement. It said, above all else, our politics initially sprang from the shared belief that black women are inherently valuable, that our liberation is a necessity, not as an adjunct to someone else's, may, but because of our need as human persons for autonomy. And she says, merely naming pejorative stereotypes attributed to black women, like mammy, matriarch you know, sapphire, whore, let alone cataloging the cruel, often murderous treatment received in the case how little has been placed upon our lives during four centuries of bondage. And we see that today still when we speak about, uh, you know, the, the, the discrimination and murders of Black trans women, right. you know, that goes really not paid a lot of attention to. So yes. the, the Kambahi River Collective, also named from the river and the place where Harriet Tubman uh, did a lot of her work in part of the Underground Railroad and uh, addressed it. So look it up, Kambahi River Collective, do a little bit of deep learning. And that's all we have time for today. We will see you next week on With Love and Justice for All. Music.